Amen. Thank you for that. Well, welcome to Calvary Bible Church. It was a number of Sundays ago, about four Sundays ago, that we really finished uh, the last major doctrinal teaching from the book of Romans. Here in the beginning of Romans chapter 15, we have a conclusion to the teaching on the stronger and weaker brother, and we spent a number of weeks uh, looking at that truth from God's Word. And so now Paul is coming to the end of the book of Romans, and so are we, and is going to draw it to a conclusion. But I want to remind us here in Romans chapter 15 as it concludes the the teaching on stronger and weaker brothers, it concludes it by giving characteristics of those that are strong. Obviously, our desire in Calvary Bible Church is that each of us be strengthened and become that strong or mature Christian. And so characteristics like these, a strong believer is governed by a consideration for others. When setting my personal standards, when living out the way I choose to express those standards in front of others and all those things, a strong believer is governed not by liberty, is governed by a consideration for others. A strong believer is also governed with a certain disregard for self. And we've taken time as we go through Romans 14 and 15 to, to see over and over again how, how when we set standards in our life, we do not set standards in our life to protect liberty. No, in fact, liberty is given up in consideration for others, and so there's a certain disregard for self. And, of course, we know this to be true in any kind of relationship. In any kind of productive relationship, there has to be a certain disregard for self. Strong believers are also governed by a desire to be like Christ instead of demanding others be like them. Strong believers are governed by a desire to be like Jesus Christ instead of demanding others be like them. And we said this, a strong, strong believers are governed by Scripture. And of course, if these are true of us, we will become a mature and a, we will become mature and strong believers. And so our last point in the first Sunday of May was that a strong congregation depends on God for unity. A strong congregation has those, those aspects true about themselves as individuals, and then as we come together, we depend on God for that unity. And so I want us to progress in the thinking and in the passage here of Romans chapter 15 and see that if we are going to be a strong, belie- a strong congregation, there are certain characteristics then about a strong congregation. So we saw these from, from Romans 14 and into Romans 15, these, these characteristics of strong believers. And then as we come together, we want to see what is it? What are, what are characteristics of a mature church? What are characteristics of a strong church? You know, as I, as I look at other churches, I, I tend to get jealous as I see uh, different programs in place or different opportunities that the other churches have and, and missions trips and all these different things that you have in place. But I think we need to be careful that we don't quantify maturity in a church by programs. We are so blessed here to have the ministry of Calvary Christian School to the community of Myrtle Beach, and in many ways that takes up the resources that we could use for other programs, but I rejoice in that opportunity. I rejoice in that ministry, and yet we need to be careful even in our assessing ourselves that just because we have this, this ministry of the school does not make us a mature church. What is it 
that characterizes a mature church. And of course, just like in a family and in a community and in a nation, it all starts on an individual level. Immature individuals, immature believers can never come together and make up a mature church. So this morning I want us, having considered what it takes to be a strong Christian, then look today at what it is that makes a mature church. And the, way, the reason we're going to do this is because Paul, in his writing, brings us to a point where he commends the church in Rome. He commends the Romans for what kind of church they are. And so using, using the commendation that Paul gives to these believers, I want us to consider ourselves before the Lord this morning as a congregation and ask ourselves, are we a mature and maturing congregation? Are we a mature and, of course, maturing congregation? Remember, Paul has not been to Rome yet. He has not even, he has not met this church. He did not plant this church. In fact, uh, many commentators believe that this church arose out of Pentecost when many people came and heard the disciples preaching in foreign languages. And, and, and as they heard the gospel preached, there were 3,000 saved. And later on, 5,000 were saved. And, and these people went out from Jerusalem as true believers, and then developed and built churches all around that area of the country. And so here it, it seems that believers went out from that preaching and started a church in Rome, and that church in Rome was a strong and mature church. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, you remember, he's desiring to go and see them. He, he wants to be a part of that church. He wants to, to give to them more of what God has given to him, but he says here in Romans 1, 7, he says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It's interesting, because as Paul writes to other churches, we're going to see a different tone. But in, 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 in Paul's tone to the Romans, he says, I want you to know that your faith your love for God has a reputation. In fact, it's spoken of throughout the whole world. And that is how Paul had learned of, of their faith. So Paul reports, or Paul as Paul receives reports from this church, he commends them. In fact, if you go through Romans, there is no one condemnation that Paul gives to this church. As you read through other books and, and, and speak of other churches, there were certain condemnations that came but here in Romans, we don't see that necessarily. And so Paul transitions from this very difficult passage on strong and weak believers, and he commends the Roman church, and he builds up the Roman church in edifying them. Look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 15. And we'll pick up our time this morning at verse 14. Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. He says this, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren... That ye, are also, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, and the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost." I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. We'll leave off our reading there this morning. What is it that 
that Paul then, as he concludes all of this teaching to the Roman church, as he concludes it, what does he commend them for? And I really would like to see five characteristics of a mature congregation. So number one, what does he say here? He says that he is persuaded of them that they are full of goodness. Full of goodness. Really, this, this word goodness can also be translated and used as the word virtuous. Virtuous. Goodness, the word agathos, is used for a moral goodness, a moral virtue. This church had a reputation for being virtuous. What does virtue look like? Well, you understand, you know that what the fruits of the Spirit are from Galatians 5.22. It says the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And so as you think of virtue, we think of the fruits of the Spirit in context to other believers and to other people. When we think of virtue, we don't necessarily think of our relationship to God, per se, as much as we think of our relationship to one another. The Roman church had a reputation for being virtuous in the way they conducted themselves with those around them. Moral goodness is simply the idea that you are submitting yourself in obedience to the Word of God and the example of Jesus Christ. Moral goodness. Submitting yourself in obedience to God's Word and the example of Jesus Christ. And so the Corinthian church stands as a very different church that gives us a picture of the Roman virtue. And think about it this way, the, the Corinthian church, when, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, what is their reputation? What is the reputation of the believers in Corinth? Well, it was carnal. It was fleshly, driven by fleshly impulses. In fact, right away, he has to confront them because they are, they are proud and arrogant about their tolerance of sin. Isn't that a message for America in this day and age? The Corinthians were proud because they were harboring sinners in their congregation and refused to separate themselves from sin. That is the opposite of moral virtue. They were arrogant about their spirituality, and as he, as he writes to them about their spiritual gifts, he says, why does everybody have to have a tongue or, a, or something to say? Why, does, why can't people just rejoice in the gift God gave them and use it to build up the church, even if it's not showy? In fact, he comes to a point, he says, I would rather speak five words that you understand than 10,000 words that you can't understand. And as we think about the church and what they were doing there, it sounds like these people were just set to glorify themselves. In fact, as he, as he confronts the Corinthian church about the Lord's table, he said, you guys are coming together. And, and I mean, think about how we celebrate the Lord's table. I'm sure it's very different from how the Corinthian church did or even churches in the New Testament back then. But he says people come in to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And to do it, some people are drunk and other people are feasting while, while others are starving. He says, I speak this to your shame. He says, because of this, people have actually died. And so in, in, in contrast to that Corinthian example, we have the Roman example, which says you are filled with all virtue. You're filled with goodness. Paul would continue to 
train Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 3.5, he warns Timothy to stay away from certain people. He says, from those who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Don't churches do that these days? Churches that, that claim to have God, claim to have the truth, claim to love the Lord, but in, in fact are characterized by blatant sin and a disregard for the truth of God's word, and are proud about it. As Paul writes to Timothy, he says, from such, turn away. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, in chapter 1, if you turn there, I want you to recognize how Paul approaches the Corinthian church in contrast to how Paul approaches the Roman church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as he starts to write to this carnal, fleshly church, he says this, And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He does not deny their Christianity, he does not deny their salvation, but he says that I cannot speak to you as mature believers, I have to speak to you as immature, carnal babes in Christ. Verse 2, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hereto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? This, the reason we look at these examples is not to say, well, yeah, that Corinthian church. No, it's to say, what about us? Would any of the, which commendation would we, as Calvary Bible Church in Myrtle Beach in 2017, what way do, what, what would we attract from the pen of Paul if he were to write to us? There's another church, though, that stands in contrast to the Corinthian church and with the Roman church in the way that Paul writes them, it's the Thessalonican church. And so if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes to, as he writes to the Thessalonican church, we see this, a similar commendation to them. It says, And as ye know, verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 2, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So we see here this, this coming alongside these two churches and commending them for their maturity. Now the church at Rome was not perfect, but their reputation was not carnal or fleshly due to spiritual immaturity. They had a love for the things of God and they had a hatred for sin. And by the way, that is a wonderful definition of spiritual maturity. You have a growing love for the things of God and you have a growing hatred and dissatisfaction for sin. Not sinners, but sin. So simply put, their moral goodness was a visible evidence of the ongoing spiritual transformation that the Spirit of God was doing through the Word of God in their lives. 
It's interesting as you meet people in the community who have never been on this campus and, and have a perception of who we are. It's interesting. I probably meet more and more people who have that idea of the school. Uh, you know, oh, uh, Calvary Christian School, it's a private school. Oh, it's expensive and their academics are hard. I said, well, have you ever been here? No, it's a private school. It's expensive and difficult, right? Or, oh man, I would never send my children to that legalistic school. There's, it's interesting as you start to hear perception. Uh, uh, we had some people visit uh, in, in time past looking to teach here, and they came in and they said, we just want you to know that, that we've heard that your church is like this, but we're so thankful that as we've been able to spend time with you, we realize that it is not what we heard. In fact, it is a, it is a, a God-honoring church. Man, that was, a, that was a blessing to hear that. Many, many people visit from out of town, and they say, we've heard such good things about your church we're glad to be here. Oh, I love to hear that. What is our reputation, not outside of Myrtle Beach, but within Myrtle Beach? What is our reputation here? Is it, is it moral goodness? I will tell you this, oftentimes moral goodness is despised. Moral goodness is often despised because it calls people into, it calls people to conviction, really. You understand this. Man, I, I'll never forget it was a, uh, it was probably about six years ago. I was at a, uh, one of our Christmas banquets, and some parents were there, and, and we were talking. some of us teachers were talking, and I was listening to two teachers talk, and I wanted to join in the conversation. The only way I knew how to join in the conversation was to cut the guy down. They were talking about golf, and I just you know, said some snide comment about his golf. I didn't know him uh, as a golfer. It's just this is how I was going to get into the conversation. And, and uh, I'll not forget that because the more I've gotten to know this guy, he is the nicest guy in the world. And every time I'm around him, I'm like, why am I such a jerk? You ever met people like that? When you're around them, they just, uh, oh, man, I, I got to work on how I speak to people. Virtue oftentimes is despised because it brings conviction. Let me ask you, are we a church that overcomes evil, not with hatred, not with spite, not with competition, but a church that overcomes evil with good? Are we a church that is, is, is used by our community and, in a sense, abused by our community and responds with grace and mercy and love and kindness? Where does virtue come from? Where does, where does a, how is a church virtuous? Number two, the first characteristic of a mature church is that in this passage that they are full of goodness. Secondly, he says this, that you are filled with all knowledge. It's, a, it's one thing to desire to be virtuous, but virtue can oftentimes stray off the path, the path of truth. This church was virtuous, but it was also filled with all knowledge. This church was theologically sound. The Roman church loved the Word of God to the point that they were filled with it. It is one thing to say that you love God's Word. It is an entirely different thing to love God's Word enough to have it change the way you live. Knowledge and believing 
always produce virtue. Colossians 3.16, you know the verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Does the word of Christ dwell richly in your life individually? Because I'll tell you this, no mature church is made up of immature believers. And if we are not allowing the word of God to camp over us, to dwell among us, to be part of my daily life, my family life, the school life, the church life, if we do not allow for that, if we do not rejoice in that and desire it, we will never be a mature church. And virtue will never grow out of ignorance. There's a clear connection between knowledge and goodness. Truth and virtue go hand in hand, and they must. Virtue that abandons truth cannot be called virtue. Truth that does not express itself in virtue is not truth. For example, a church that is is heavily involved in helping the community, but in reaching out to the community, compromises and abandons the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is actually damning the community. Think about it. A church that is there as as salt and light, but is not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like handing people water bottles in a race over a cliff. Here, refresh yourself as you die, right? A church in a community that pats its people on the back but doesn't give to them what they need is damning the community. church that seeks for virtue but abandons truth not a true church. On the flip side, though, a church that considers itself passionate for the truth and for doctrine, but then isolates themselves from their community and turns their back on the needs of those around them, they are not passionate for doctrine and for truth. They are deceived and is thinking that somehow a right relationship to God can be enjoyed while neglecting a right relationship to the people Christ came to save. This is not true doctrine. Truth and virtue go hand in hand. It is the outworking of the two great commandments to love God, to know God is to love Him, and then to love God is then to live for one another. I remember speaking to a man recently who was talking about, he said, no, he goes, listen, I have to put my, my ministry aside. I must be right with God before I can be right with others. And I appreciated what he was trying to communicate there, but at the same time, that is a misnomer because you cannot be right with God and neglect his people. You cannot be right with God vertically and ignore the horizontal. They go hand in hand. A right relationship with God always expresses itself. True knowledge of God will express itself in virtue to the community. If a church, if a church is going to be virtuous, that virtue must be the overflow and the expression of a true knowledge of God in His Word. This can absolutely be true about our church. We can hate sin, we can love righteousness. 
and love the sinner. We can be passionate for holiness without hiding our candle under a bushel, but by letting it shine in a dark community. You see, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge, the truth, the facts, wisdom, how to live out the facts in daily life. It's in Christ. If we are the body of Christ, in Christ, in Christ are hid all the truth. The truth and wisdom, the example of how to live it out. By the way, it's important to see then how these two things come together to minister to the body itself. It's interesting how truth and virtue come together within a church. It is the next commendation in the passage. Look at it. It says here that they are they're full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. And then it says this, you are able to admonish one another. As knowledge of God's word and virtue come together, it makes you a mature and apt counselor for others. A mature and capable counselor. The word able there is the word dunamis. We get our word dynamite and it speaks, it speaks to strength and ability. Let me ask you this morning, would you consider yourself a a capable counselor for the deep problems of our community. Would you? If there's a, a deep sin within this church, if there, is a, if there is a struggling family, a struggling parent, a struggling father, mother, struggling child, can we bring that person to you? Would you feel, in the words of Jay Adams, competent to counsel? Hmm. The word admonish here is the word nutheo. It comes from the word nutheo, and it's, it, it means to, to caution or reprove gently. And it, it carries the idea of being able to turn somebody out of a destructive path and into the right path. <clears throat> Jay Adams wrote a book called Competent to Counsel, and for him, as a treatise on what he calls neuthetic counseling. Simply put, neuthetic counseling is biblical counsel. Not taking Bible verses and propping up the world's psychology with Bible verses. It's strictly biblical counseling. Okay, so this morning, as we read verses from 2 Peter, it said that we have been given everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything... To live life and to live life the way God wants it lived. Okay, that has been given to you. Are you able to use that? What else do you need to counsel? What else do you need to counsel not just others but even your own self? The ability to counsel is the natural byproduct of knowing God's word and having a love for others, right? If you know God's word, you know the truth. 
and you love other people and you see people on a destructive path, you are compelled to counsel. But I will tell you this, in the years that I have been in the school here, people are desperate for counsel and can't find it. People are desperately looking for answers and can't find somebody competent to counsel. Why is that? Well, I would say this. We're either short in one of the two areas. We either don't know the Word of God effectively, or we don't have a love for people that would allow us to be honest. When confronted with a problem, the immediate response of a mature believer is to turn to the God who created man, who knows everything about man, who has prescribed the pathway to happiness and success and security and blessing and joy, even in the face of trial. That is who our God is. But so often we try to play the psychologist game. We try, to, we try to bring this word called manipulation of behavior into the picture. And if I could just manipulate the, the environment or the circumstances enough, I'll motivate them to, to start being right. People give themselves to this and study all the time. A believer in Jesus Christ who knows the word of God and has a love for his brother and a love for the lost world is the best counselor because all they have to do is help others to know their creator or to know their redeemer or to know their friend, Jesus Christ. But the only way a person can do that is if they themselves have that intimate knowledge and relationship with Christ. You see, as I sit at home and my son, who has now reached the mature academic age of seventh grade, brings me his math book, well, I am not competent. I was more competent in August than I was in May. And it actually, he'd come to me and he'd say, would you please grade my homework, check my homework? And I would say, sure, absolutely. And I'd go through his homework and I'd find some problems, feel pretty good about myself. And then I started asking, well, how many are you missing when you get your homework checked? And he'd tell me, I'd be like, oh, man, I am awful. And at, toward the end of the year, he, he would testify that I kind of just stopped grading his math because I think sometimes the ones that he got correct, I was like, no, that's wrong. I am not a competent math teacher. And therefore, as my children progress through their math, I will either need to study math and learn it, <clears throat> or right? Or, or, or point them to somebody who can. I, I plan on the latter. And here's why. I cannot lead my children across ground that I have never really been or do not fully understand. I cannot lead my children in godliness and in an understanding of the word of God, I cannot counsel my children if those are steps that I have never taken or knowledge that I have never gained. I can point and say, well, I'd, I'd like you to be like that. 
But when it comes to the real questions of life, if I don't know Christ, and if I am not growing in my relationship to Jesus Christ, I cannot counsel them, much less you or your children. Believers who are mature, a church that is mature, is mature because they have the knowledge of their creator, their redeemer, their advocate, their friend, and because they have this intimate knowledge, they can lead others to Christ. The world hates this. The world hates this. They mock it. They despise it. They write volumes and articles. They get doctorates, grants, awards, and commendations for things that even the most elementary student of the Bible can put to shame because of its foolishness. But there is this pressure on believers to be accepted by what the world, by what God calls the foolishness of men. And so we say, well, I, I can't abandon God, so I'll try to hold on to God's hand and Freud's hand at the same time. Let me just tell you, if you've ever studied Freud, he hated God. He hated morality. He hated the truth of Scripture. We don't need Freud and Pavlov and Spangler and Rogers and all these exalted psychologists and human behaviorists and psychiatrists to get to the heart of the problem. We are at our core spiritual beings before God. He made us. He has the answers for us. In fact, in this passage, it lays out only two things necessary to be a qualified counselor. Have a knowledge of God and His Word and a life characterized by obedience to that knowledge. If you have those things, then you have every necessary tool to counsel. No, you're not going to have the answer for everything, but you'll know where to point people. It makes perfect sense to a true believer to hear the words of God. But don't kid yourself. The world hates it. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, which we spent quite a bit of time on, the world knows who God is, but refuses to glorify Him as God, and then it says they become vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Why is the church so passionate about having the approval of vanity and foolishness? What do you study when it comes to answering questions for yourself, for your children, for your friends? Man, if you go into a Christian bookstore these days, you will find all sorts of help, self-help. In fact, you'll find that the, uh, the, the growing emphasis of today's writers is to incorporate modern psychology with the biblical truth. Don't buy it. Get a Bible and read it. You have the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher. He is the psychologist. He knows how to heal the soul. He's your teacher. Take his word and see if he will not just open up truth to you.
Don't ever buy into the lie that says competent counselors are Christians who have degrees educated by the world. Don't ever buy it. Because when you blend the damning philosophies of a psychology and a biology that deny God and his existence, that deny the spiritual existence of the soul, that believe in the inherent goodness of man, when you blend all that poison from the pit of hell with some Bible verses and the word Christian, you don't help anybody. In fact, you've changed the truth of a God into a lie, just as Romans chapter 1 says. And thus, there are ineffective prescriptions for life-devastating problems. So Paul tells them here, they didn't even need him. He says, you don't even need me because you are full of the knowledge of God and virtue to live it out. If you're not there, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We read from there. What does that look like in a what does that look like in a church? How does it live itself out? How does it, how does it practically interact with other people? Look at it, and if we'll start reading in Colossians 3.12, it says this. Well, first it tells us to put off a bunch of things that are self-serving. Really, it's the love yourself category. And it goes on in verse 12 to say this. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Look at that. Not one single word or phrase that tells us to love ourselves. Not there. In fact, it says deny yourself and love your neighbor. And as you do that, it'll be seen in mercy and kindness and humbleness, humility and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. You know what forbearing means? Just take it. Take it, bottle it up, and hand it to the Lord. Then it says to forgive. Going on in verse 14, it says, Above all things, Put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. Let the peace of God rule in your heart, to the which you are also called in one body, and be ye thankful. Do you see that? How a knowledge of God absolutely affects the way we treat one another, and through that treatment of one another, we allow the peace of God to rule in our hearts as a body, as a church. And there, you know what comes out of out of treating one another this way and allowing God to be God and allowing God's word to be our counselor, it produces something, and it's, it's an amazing thing. It's gratitude to God for one another. Oh, I'm so thankful for you. Man, oftentimes that's not how, what characterizes it. Man, this past week was a stressful week. It always is. And it doesn't matter what we do to prepare for it. I always forget something. I got up on stage to call the seniors' names, and there are only two. And I looked at the girl, and I didn't know who she was. I have spent hours with this girl. And so I went on from her to the next person, and I remembered his name. 
And the pastor had taken the program off the podium, so it was his fault. And as I'm looking at this girl, I'm smiling like, ha, we have this personal joke, but actually it's like, Lord, please just give me her name. And I got the first two right, and then I almost substituted her dad's first name for her last name, but thankfully the Lord allowed it. You know, it's, there, there is this attitude, this prevailing attitude that comes amongst a church where when we see one another, we are grateful. We're grateful for one another. Even in the stressful times. You see this virtue and knowledge of God flushes itself out in the fact that a mature church is a church that can counsel itself. Let me ask you this. Are you a person, are we a congregation that can counsel our pastor? Are we a church that can counsel our pastor? That is a church. A church that between its congregation, between its members, they all know the word of God and they are working it out daily in their lives and in the lives of others because they love each other. But I'll tell you what that requires. What does it require from the pastor to receive counsel from the congregation? Great humility, right? But I tell you this, you cannot read the book of Proverbs and get away from the idea that it is the humble that are wise. It is the humble that are wise. Let me read some verses to you from Proverbs. Proverbs 29 and verse 1. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And we're not, let's move on past the pastor illustration. We're not talking about our pastor. Thankful for his humility. But listen, what are you? If someone today were to confront you about something in your life, would you be the person that hardens his neck and says this? <laughs> well, let I have some words of counsel for you. You see a speck in my eye, you've got a whole forest growing out of your eye. Right? He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. Proverbs 19.25, listen to these words from God. Smite a scorner, and the simple will beware. Reprove one that hath understanding, and he will understand knowledge. You see, it does not say reason with the unreasonable. It says smite the unreasonable, and others around will take warning. But when you offer reproof to the one who has understanding, they will only continue to grow in knowledge. What are you in this, in this passage? Don't think of anybody else. Just think about yourself. What does it take to get counsel through to you? Does it take great trial? Does it take smiting? Or are you a person who invites reproof no matter what the source and is endeavoring in your heart to learn from it? Smite a scorner. Reprove one that has understanding. 
fact, that goes on in Proverbs 9, 8. and gives very similar instruction. It says this, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will what? Love thee. Don't reprove a scorner because he's just going to turn his back on you. just turn his back and scorn you for, for the pearls that you put out there. But he says this, a wise man invites rebuke. A wise man invites that criticism. He invites that hard word that allows him to, to, to consider who he is before God. Doesn't mean he always takes it. Sometimes he rejects it because of the source. But he, well, no matter what, he receives it for the purpose of being yet wiser. Proverbs 9, 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser yet. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Oh, and then it ends with this beautiful verse in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. What kind of a church are we? Do we stiffen our backs when somebody steps on our toes with what they have to say? Do we immediately look for the flaw in somebody else and say, Don't you dare say this about me. Look at your own life. Or we like the wise man, the one with understanding who invites it regardless of the source, takes it into consideration with God's word and learns from it. You can learn just as much from a fool as you can a wise man. The Roman church was this kind of a church. And we know it is because look, the next phrase even builds on it. Number four, characteristic of a mature church, they are able to receive strong teaching. Look what it says there. I am persuaded of you, brethren, that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to counsel one another. Nevertheless, even though you have these things, brethren, I have written unto you the more boldly. Because of your maturity, I have written very deep and difficult truths to you. Some that are hard to take. But remember, wise people love learning. They love instruction. They love the deep things of God. One thing that you, any teacher wants to guard against is boring their students. In fact, especially the ones who are gifted you don't want them bored. You want to continually challenge them and give them something to think about and give them something to work over. And even if it is difficult, in fact, that's where you give the difficult teaching is to the one who has the knowledge because what? You want them to continue to work at it. Intelligent people love to learn. In fact, Paul was able to write, in a sense, much deeper truths to the Roman church than the Corinthian church. In fact, he calls it meat, not milk. Why? What happens when you take meat and eat it the same way you receive milk? You choke. And Paul couldn't give the meat to the Corinthian church. He said, I've got to give you, I've got to give you milk so that you don't choke. But here to the Roman church, he gives them meat-like, stronger and weaker brother. And what do you have to do with meat? You can't just imbibe meat Sunday morning and be done with it. No, you're supposed to go home and do what? Chew it, and chew it, and chew it, 
and take time and meditate on it and let it challenge you in your convictions. Let it challenge you in your upbringing. Let it challenge you in your traditions and in your standards at home. Let the Word of God, in a sense, make you doubt who you are so that it can build you up in the truth of God's Word. Man, when we went through Romans 14 and 15, it really called me to go back to, to when I was a child and what I learned as a child, what I learned within my church out in Colorado and the school that I was with in Colorado and the school I went to in college and seminary and my time here and developing a handbook at the beginning of my time here and all those things. It called me to step backwards and say, I need to put that all aside and see what God's Word has to say. People don't like that causes people to choke. Well, that's not how I was brought up. That's not comfortable for me. Are we a church that can receive strong teaching because we will chew it up? We will meditate upon it. And like the Bereans, we will search the scriptures to see if what that pastor said was true or whether he's just playing a game. So many times I've been forced to reconsider the things that I have known from God's word while studying the book of Romans over the past two years. doesn't mean that I've thrown off who I was or what I've ch- how I've changed or that I haven't, it hasn't called me to, to divorce myself from everything that I knew. But you know what it does? When you, when you start to understand it more and more clearly, it gives you such strength to stand because it has called you back to the Word of God. Do you remember when we started this study? Some of you weren't even here. We started this study back in October of 2015. You know why we started it? Because the Supreme Court had just handed down a horrible decision about the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of life. We're at the beginning of a very discouraging and frustrating presidential campaign. We are watching our current president undermine the biblical heritage of our country every opportunity he had. And while American Christians were desperately seeking for hope, our desire was to say, no, it is the gospel that is the power of God that changes a community, that changes a family, that changes the individual. Remember that from Romans 1.16? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation of the Roland family. Salvation of Myrtle Beach. Salvation of the sanctity of life. Salvation of of anything and everything that we're frustrated at, the gospel holds the answers. And so the whole series has been entitled Understanding the Gospel. Now the question is, after a long time and long sermons, I have a clock here, long sermons, have you chewed on it at all? Have Have you been fortified as a mature believer? Have you choked? You know what the first point, remember, and I'm, I'm asking some of you to go back a ways. You know what the first point was in the gospel presentation in Romans? God's wrath. Right there, many churches have just choked. Many 2017 Christians have just choked. How can you call people to a God who is angry? How can you call people to a God who, uh, with, with wrath? Do you remember this? 
It's not easy or comforting. It is bold, it is difficult, but it is so necessary. In fact, if you have a true appreciation for the love of God, it grows out of your understanding of the wrath of God. And so people who reject the deeper truths of Scripture lose out on the easy truths of Scripture as well. Turn with me to, we'll finish up, turn with me to 2 Timothy. So Paul is challenging this young pastor. Church in Ephesus that had some major problems. He's challenging a, a, a preacher on where to put his priorities and how to handle the word of God. To be a mature pastor. And here's what he says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1. He says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. And he says this, preach the word. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, or be ready to preach no matter what time it is or what problem is going on in Ephesus. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For... The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after, the, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The Roman church was mature because it was virtuous as an outworking of their knowledge of God they were able to counsel one another, and they truly desired the deep things of Scripture. Churches that do not desire the deep and difficult things of Scripture will eventually call to themselves preachers who will preach nice, motivating, really well-put-together sermons that don't get them past the struggles of daily living. Oh, how many times I've seen people devastated by death in a in family or of a loved one. A mature believer cannot be devastated by death if he understands who God is. If he understands why Christ came, why Christ died on a cross and rose from the dead. No, I'm not saying that we can't grieve, but it cannot, it cannot devastate you and it cannot pull you away from probably one of the greatest opportunities to preach the gospel. In the first chapter, or the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, he said that these pastors, these teachers who will just tell you what makes you feel good and send you on your way, he says they are proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, where, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness says, from such, withdraw thyself. What do you want when you come to church on Sunday morning? Well, I just want some good music and some good preaching. See, a mature congregation comes to a service like this and strongly desires to give themselves to God, understanding that they want to know the God they're giving themselves to. And to know Him, it needs to get past the feel good. It needs to get to the deep things of Scripture. 
so that we can truly love the true God. Oh, if that is our passion, we will be able to counsel one another. The community will see a difference in who we are. They may despise us for virtue. They may despise us for trusting the Word of God, but we will be a light to a perishing Myrtle Beach. Can this church handle that? Or are we choking? We'll leave off. The last point is that they're passionate about the gospel, and we'll move, we'll move on to that later. Let me just ask you, you make up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a collection of people who know Christ as Savior. But a mature congregation is made up of mature individuals. And God can do great things through us, and I have seen God do great things through us, and I have seen God grow us and strengthen us and mature us. And I am so thankful that even a message like this can be received from a person like me, who you know is imperfect, and you know struggles with maturity. But you will receive it as the word of God, as it is in truth. I praise the Lord for that. But I pray that we as a congregation will commit ourselves individually and corporately to be a mature church. Let's pray and ask God to do that work in us. Our Heavenly Father, you know... You know our hearts, you know where each one of us struggles, you know our strengths, you know our weaknesses. Lord, you know this ministry, you know that this ministry has great weakness. You know this ministry has had great ministry here in Myrtle Beach over its many years. And Lord, we thank you that you would use even us. But Lord, our desire this morning is to move on to better things to move on to greater ministry. Lord, not programs and buildings, but, but deeper ministry to ourselves through counseling, through a brighter light in our community, through our virtue. Forgive us for neglecting your word, which is the only pathway to virtue and to counsel.